And we're live. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to episode 15 of welcome the Redesign back. Growth podcast. Uh, for those of us, uh, for those of you who are tuning in with us for the first time, welcome to the podcast. For those of you who have been with us for prior episodes, uh, thanks for coming back. I uh, really appreciate it. It's uh, it's great for our egos and uh, self-esteem. Uh, so this this episode, we decided to do something different. Uh, instead of having another guest on, we decided to take a look back at all of our previous episodes because we've had a wide variety of guests speak about a lot of similar topics, but bring a wide variety of perspectives to them. Uh, and each conversation has only been like an hour long, so uh, at, at most, and that's barely scratched the surface sometimes, and there's things that we've wanted to delve deeper into that we didn't get a chance to. So today I'm joined by both my co-hosts, uh, Tim and Shruti. Uh, and of course, I'm You really host, love Tim. us, right? Oh, that's so that's why you wanted both of us? Yeah. So <laughs> we're the hosts and the guests today. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, this episode, we thought it would be nice to take a look back at some of the key moments in previous episodes and just talk a little bit more about them, talk a little bit more about some of the concepts discussed there um, and uh, and just see see if we can't if we can't dive deeper into some some key moments. Um, Tim. Do you want to do you want to tell people about like our guest list? Because yeah. uh, again, like we were just talking about this uh, in yeah. terms of in terms of how how varied people are. So uh, can can you talk about? Yeah, this? I, I did some I math. I, I I put together some lists, and um, one thing that I found this is really cool number to me. But uh, the guests that we've had on the podcast up till now, when you combine mm -hmm. all the experience that they have had in product and UX and research in these fields that we operate in. Uh, it's a total of about 208 years. So that's that's wow. more than two centuries of professional experience. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some outliers on either end. There's some people who have had almost, I think our, our highest was 28 years of experience, 27 wow. years. There are some people who have just started doing this stuff within the last couple of years, but are already doing incredible things with a, some really impactful startups. Uh, and we've talked to, to all of those and everything in between. Uh, I also put together, I, I aggregated some of the titles, uh, current and formal titles and roles held by our guests and found which ones were the most uh, commonly occurring. We've had six people who are or were founders, co-founders. We've had four CEOs, four heads of product, and that's including you know CPO, product VP, um, all those similar roles. We've had four product managers, product leads, group product managers. We've had two people who were UX designers, senior UX designers, um, two UX researchers or UX research directors. Um, and then we've had kind of a random assortment of some other ones. We've had a president of research and insights. We've had a UX architect, creative director, adjunct professor of UX, uh, chief operating officer, a startup investor, early stage startup uh, investor. So we've had really quite a, a range of experiences and perspectives, and we've asked uh similar questions and, and, and some different questions to all of them. And we've gotten some uh, perspective. In, in some ways, uh, people have aligned uh, on, on those topics and, and there have been some divergent opinions too. So I'm excited to dive into some of that. Cool. Uh, so Shruti, what would be, what would you say are like the, the like what, what are the topics that at least broadly you'd say the uh, like the conversations have coalesced around? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, again, we've had 15 episodes. So a lot of content has come out through that. Um, We've discussed a lot of different topics. But I think there's three overarching themes that I've kind of cherry picked across these 15 um, that I I think we should really delve into um, again today. So the first one being the democratization of in UX. Um, I think that's a big one that we've seen across a few of our um, guests. I think the second one is AI. AI is not only hot and trending by like the word itself, but it's also really big topic for every company. Um, And then the last one is road mapping and product decision making. So I'm excited. Like um, I would, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but we're going to play some clips throughout this podcast today. Talk a little bit about some of the clips from previous episodes. Um, Yeah. Super excited. I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, we do ask um, a little bit of grace in advance in case sharing the clips, uh, if there's any technological problems or, or formatting goes haywire. Uh, this is our first time doing something like this. So I'll be pulling up some clips uh, and just bear with us uh, if there's any uh, difficulty that happens with that. Or, but, or uh, you can just blow. You can you can leave comments. <laughs> I mean, yeah, by the way, please, um, for those listening live, let us know what some of your favorite moments, insights, quotes uh, from different prior episodes have been, and we'd love to talk about those too. Yeah. Um, I think to start off with, one of my favorite uh, moments, this is an ep- uh, from uh, Bailey Farron, the founder and CEO of Perimeter, which is a uh, uh, an app for first responders. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. And we talked to her a lot about where user research fits in at the early stage uh, of where her company's been in the last few years. And that's, you know, tied to a lot of um hold on i'm getting a message that did uh, we, I, I i got it i got it covered okay um i forgot what i was saying but let's go ahead and pull up the clip <laughs> uh, just yeah about bailey's uh bailey's episode what, what like while, while we're pulling up the clip what i loved about bailey's episode was the fact that uh like it just made me feel like a pretender, at least, <laughs> like, you know, she's solving such an amazing problem, like a real world problem that's, uh, that's critical and, and she's helping save lives. So that's I love really that exciting. episode overall. Yeah. yeah. At this stage in the company, you know, we're deploying with a couple states and, you know, a bunch of counties, but it's our, our user base is small enough that our team is able to have relationships with these agencies and being able to get feedback, whether it's on a survey or whether it's a conversation with our design team or with me is absolutely critical at this stage, because as you know, you know, when you first get a product in front of a user, you are going to, to recognize all of these like mistakes you made in the design process. And, you're going to recognize significantly more mistakes in the early days when the product is first interacting with users and vice versa than you are in later days after you've you know already iterated on on those problems that have come up. And so at this stage in the company, having those relationships and asking for candid feedback is really essential to making sure that user number five thousand is having a you know a really streamlined experience with with the platform. So the conversations that we have now are going to have, you know, huge implications um, as to the way that user number 5000 actually, you know, uses the platform and how easy it is for them. Um, I think I think something I want to touch upon there right off the bat and something that I think Bailey does a great job of putting forth is 
you can do user research at earlier stages, right? Uh, and and that, in fact, the earlier earlier you do it, the better. And I think I think I, one I of the things that the way that she paints the cascading uh, ripple effect of, of if you're doing it early with user five, how much of a difference that makes for user five thousand? It's such a succinct way to to right. make that impact. And and I think I think it's something that we talk about. At least we've 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 talked about it before where. Uh, a recurring user research practice allows you to avoid UX debt, right? Like the idea of like, hey, I built I built a bunch of shitty things early on, and and now when I go to build like the next thing, even though it's awesome, I'm building it on top of these shitty things, and I need to go and fix these shitty things first. And like you know, you you sort of accrue uh, accrue like bad design decisions, and it and it just increases uh, the weight that you have to carry forward uh when when you're when you're trying to design like a new thing or like trying to do better so i think i think user research is important at every stage uh of the company but one thing i will say is oftentimes right that becomes people people get daunted by that prospect because it's like shit do i have to hire a researcher right do i need to like set up a research practice with like a lab right uh, you know it's because because the 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 academic side of research it's massive like you can you can build these practices you can build these like elaborate elaborate studies you can like you know you can there's definitely like the best way to do it yeah right but i think i think it's kernel is there's a kernel of truth where anybody can do just like hey talk to your customer like talk to your user and and like see what they like and they don't like It, it might be a more primitive style of research but it's still research. It's still valuable. The kind of feedback you're going to get is going to be impactful and allow you to move a needle, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's what it's going for. Like you're just grabbing someone down the hallway, being like, "Hey, man, do you think this is shit?" Right? Like, um, mm-hmm. or like, "What do you think of this?" Right? It's not sophisticated. It's not. It's not great. It's not like a research best practice. But even just that interaction with your customers is better than you just going on a hunch and a prayer. And building something that then later on has like a noticeable amount of UX debt, right? Yeah. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of wanted to add to that, Rit. Um, I think you made a really good point. I, I think oftentimes founders, um, when you're just starting out, there's so many things to think about, right? Like, how do I scale my company out? But like, the the thing that I think that's also really critical that you're mentioning is that even user research is something that you can scale out, right? And that itself is another journey. It's one aspect of your founder journey. Um, So I think it's something really important to call out. You start small and then in every phase, as your company size grows bigger, as you like get larger and larger, then you can hit that standard that Tim is talking about of like, what is the best version of having a user research organization maybe, but everything starts small, right? In the beginning. Exactly, right? Like uh, you've also seen arguments that, you know, at those smaller sizes, you should have non-researcher roles engaged in research because when you're that young and that early, the people making product decisions are still building up their own intuition and, and identifying where the product market fit is. I think Rahul uh, in episode nine talked a lot about that. Yeah. Uh, and that then as you mature and you no longer need to do that, you know, kind of groundwork level um, where where the PMs are are understanding what sphere they're operating in and, and who the customer is, then you can shift a lot more of that um, research responsibility to the specialists. But his argument wasn't just that because you're uh, you know, small and, and can't afford to hire a specialist that, that you, know, you have the PMs and, and designers do it. He was saying that actually it's, it's a net gain to have 
those non-researcher roles doing research, engaged in research mm -hmm. when you're that early. Yeah, and, and that was echoed as a sentiment by uh, one of our more recent uh, uh, guests as well, Wade uh, from Smart Access, and he talks about how it's it's critical for him, the process he built from scratch, that the entire product trio, that is the PM, the engineer, and the design, like all three of these people, right? All of them engage in product discovery actively, yeah. right? Why don't, and, I, uh, why don't I pull up the clip for that, actually? Let's do it. Let me just find that. And he, I think we've got a couple of clips of, you know, on, on this topic, but here's, here's one that's going to address kind of his baseline philosophy of, of how research can and should fit in. Mm -hmm. you, you can't just tell your team, I expect you to talk to customers and I expect you to test things and I expect you to do research without providing a mechanism for, for that to happen. And so when you create a culture around that of saying, okay, we've got a discovery track and we expect the same people to be doing it. We're not gonna outsource it to a research team or to a third party or to a, a subject matter expert or an, an, an analyst. Um, we expect you, each of you, even engineers, mm -hmm. to be talking to customers and participating in this process and 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 vetting your vetting the ideas. Uh, like it, just an example of how much I love this. At the bottom of our our one pager documents, which is is the artifact that we use to to communicate and drive the the research going through discovery, we have something called a learning log at mm -hmm. the bottom, and right. and. That, that's where we document those learnings. Where 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 we say, here was our here here was our hypothesis. Here's what we tried. Here's what we learned, and here's what we're doing different based off of the things things that we learned. And so, um, it's a way for the team to have uh, a, a a way to talk about that and to um, operationalize it, opposed to just kind of having that hanging over your shoulder. Yeah, we yeah. should to customers <laughs> right i i think i think like baking it into the ethos right is is kind of what wade's talking about and i also think it what it does is it makes makes sure that everyone on a product team because ultimately if your product team is building a product that solves a problem like for a user right everyone is kind of in tune with the person they're solving the problem for right uh, or the persona they're solving the problem for, and and uh, I think this is this is something that uh, to me uh, it, it's something that we we've we've been trying to do more of, and and it echoes right. Like, look, Tim, Tim, when we when we early early stage started, it was just you and me. Does that mean that we didn't talk to customers because we didn't have a researcher, right? Like, or does it mean that like you know we we didn't we didn't do marketing because we didn't have like a like a dedicated marketer? Um, or like Shruti, since you've come on, like you know, you've you've been talking to customers, etc. Even though you're you're chief product officer, right? Yeah. Like, it, it the thing is like the, the idea of wearing multiple hats is I, I think key to like any organization that's that's starting up, uh, and then and then as you build, right? Like you get more stratification in your roles, but uh, these practices are important. Like you, re, the user research, insofar as a practice, it doesn't matter who's doing it. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, if you scale up to be an organization that has like 20 designers and 10 researchers or something like that, great. Right. But that's not necessarily no one starts up at that scale. Uh, so so you have you have to at least inculcate the practice right before you build like the organizational process around it. I think those two, the, there's a distinction between the two. 
and and I think what Wade's talking about is like, hey, that practice, there's a benefit of inculcating it into everyone in the product org because there's value there. Yeah. Well, and for what it's worth, I think we've had some guests that would probably disagree with that approach uh, to doing user research, UX research. Mm-hmm. Uh, who would make the argument? Let the experts do the research. They're the ones that have the know-how, the skills that are able to execute on it um, in a way that's going to be effective and accurate and then analyze right. it in a way. And, and you know, for for context, I do want to add that um, Wade, in a different clip, uh, in a different part of that episode, he talks about how um, one of the responsibilities of having a dedicated researcher, in his, his opinion, is that one of those responsibilities is that the UX researcher almost acts as an in-house research consultant to, to help um, those non-researchers do good research, ask good questions, set up right. studies in addition to doing research themselves. Almost they're- like coaching the product team on on like research best, like building a research practice template that can be emulated by the rest yeah. of the team and then doing like more cutting edge stuff themselves. But uh, like he does, he did mention that. You're right. Yeah. Um, and I want to play a different clip here because now, um, you know, Darren Hood came on in episode 10 and talked about democratization and how um, his feeling is that, that um, the, the way that democratization of UX has been happening is, is not the original intention of, of that movement uh, and how it's kind of become something it was never supposed to be. So let me find that clip and we'll watch um, his perspective on that. The original definition got tainted somewhere because democratization, democratization never meant everybody should be doing this. Democratization initially was about us coming together to synthesize data. It had nothing to do with, with John and Timmy and Sue and, and, and these other people doing helping you with research because you didn't have enough people. Yeah, That's kind of an interesting counterpoint. Yeah. Yeah, so that the key takeaway there is Tim, you should not do research. But but no, like I, I think I think I think I see where Darren's coming from, right? Like that Darren has uh, a lot of lot of like enterprise experience and and uh, you know, this is something that I've I've thought about uh, even even in like our last uh, last meeting, uh, like our, our, our last episode, right? It, it takes like an apple can drop on anyone's head. Like Newton, if it drops on Newton's head, Newton's the guy that says, oh, it's about gravity as opposed to the health hazard of sitting under apple trees, right? Like it's the, 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 the takeaway uh, or, or like the value of uh, like the, the insight and the takeaway is heavily driven by like the person and the perspective, right? Uh, and I mean, so, yeah, obviously us, running a UX research company that, that allows people to do this sort of research. We see people do bad research on a regular basis. We see people all the time. usability tests with tasks that are, are confusing and poorly worded and don't make sense. Scenarios that don't explain what they're supposed to explain. Yeah. Um, you know, studies that are not going to generate yeah. insight that that person actually wanted to gain because they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, research is a skill that you need to hone and you need to perfect and, and you need to think about what's the right way to ask this question or sometimes not ask a question and, and nudge the answer out instead. 
And, right. and my question, like maybe to both of you, because we're talking a lot about what, what kind of issues exist, like what's like the advice perspective that you can give out to some of our listeners who maybe are just kind of getting started? Like how can they not set up a horrible usability test? Like how can they drive insights out of the test well, that they're running? Okay. So, so good, great question, right? I, I think uh, I want to answer it in like, I want to bifurcate it, right? In terms of how to, like the mechanics of writing a good usability test and things like that, and there's a ton of resources on our blog and knowledge base. Right. There's tons of resources online. There's instructions on how to do it. You don't lead the witness, right? Like you you, you, you give them goal-based tasks, not like action-based tasks. And there's there's things to do on that front, right? But I think kind of more, more like philosophically, like broad scale, talking to a customer is user research, but it, think of I, I like to think of it as concentric rings, right? Uh, the stuff on the outside, like surface level, obvious, like mistakes that can be fixed, obvious learnings that can be that can be gleaned. Uh, I think they're obvious. They're like the first, like most apparent thing, right? If I if I if I hand you an application, like you know, like hey man, I built this thing. Uh, can you can you try it out? And you you just can't log in or you can't create an account. Right, like that's that's a that's a valuable insight, but it's a very obvious insight, right? But as you kind of kind of like filter down that, right? Like, I, like what what are you trying to learn, really? Like all of these obvious insights, you'll get all of these in your first test, right? There, the uh, a common thing in the usability testing world is like five test results will uncover eighty percent of your usability issues, right? Because that shit's obvious. Um, and, and, and like it becomes apparent from just like having your target user use the platform, you see the data, right? There's no sophistication there. But assume that everybody's doing this 80%. We're in a competitive environment, right? Like you're doing it, your competitors are doing it. Everyone, everyone's trying to figure out, like everyone can figure out this stuff. Right. Where the magic happens is to go the additional 1%, to go from 80 to 81, right? You, like five test results will get you 80% of your, of your findings, but like multiple studies and and like really in-depth researcher input is what gets you from 80 to 81 right uh, so so the 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 obviousness or the subtlety of insights becomes exponentially higher as as you reach like a, a certain threshold so when you get to the inner ring right at that point like when you want to get to the inner ring you need someone with the expertise to be able to like understand what's being like what what's coming up to like understand like the emergent patterns like while a user might not spell it out for you like i hate this they they're seeing the user behavior putting it in context and are able to be like hey this is a problem because did you see that right do you see what the user did there right. right like that is is so much more subtle and that's where i think expertise kind of comes in right that actually reminds me of um a lot of what rob was talking about in in episode 2 about um, that what the UX expert or specialist really adds in an organization is understanding of human behavior. Exactly. And what he specifically talked about, a lot of roles now are looking at data, user data, re, uh, customer data. As the UXer, you are not the only one that's adding data to the picture. You're not the only one that's adding that value. But what yep. you should be adding that is unique to being the UX specialist is an ability to understand, analyze, and translate human behavior and turn that into impact on the product. 
And I thought that was, I, I had never heard it articulated that way, but I, I really liked that. Cause I mean, he's right. Investors yeah. are not the only people looking at, at uh, yeah. customer data these days, but yeah. you can look at customer data and, and not be able to translate that into something meaningful. Right. Yeah. I think, I think the, the interpretation of it, right. Like the understanding of that data, I think, I think, uh, when you when you want to get into deeper nuances, then you need like someone with with the the right qualifications or like the right eye to like get get like past like layer two of the concentric circle, right? Into into the in depth stuff. Yeah, I also, I, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I also think something that maybe we didn't chat about that is also critical is like your time to insight, right? Like you don't want to spend hours um, conducting like this research and having all sorts of data to sift through, right? How can you make quick business decisions and quick decisions for your organization and for your design um, is a very critical component, I think, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think for us as an organization, right, like time to insight is a North Star that that we try to try to strive for with the stuff that we built with our product, right? Yeah. Hey, how do I help you build better tests faster? Yeah. How do I help you take test data and analyze it faster? How do I help you communicate your findings from test data to your, your other teammates faster? Right, like this stuff is 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 all about like speeding up getting to the insight. But right, uh, the, the the fact of the matter is like I can give you as many guard guardrails as possible, but you can still build a shitty test. Yeah. You could still build a shitty test. You could still get data that, like, you know, where the testers are confused. It's not their fault that they got shitty tasks, right? And they could be confused. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're confused, uh, the, they're they're not gonna they're not gonna actually follow through. And like, the kind of data you're gonna get is gonna be muddied. So the ability for you to extract insights from that data then then again gets gets hindered. So I think having having like a professional or having Having someone that's able to give you, I think, I think the wage point, or like even even when you get a user researcher, someone that's able to like build the practice, sort of specify the best practices, and uh, and have that be sort of a playbook for for a research approach. I think that makes a huge difference, right? Yeah. Uh, but but to Bailey's point, hey, you can just talk to customers and you'll still learn something. Right? Yeah. You know, some of that you were just saying, Rit, um, reminded me of of one of the. Uh, kind of common mistakes I see, especially among like non-research specialists when they're setting up a usability test. And I, I think it's kind of a funny blind spot because mm -hmm. you haven't, you know, maybe a designer is running a test and a designer, when they're creating interfaces and elements and flows, they are intimately aware that you need to have empathy for the user and think about when the user approaches this interface, this flow, this design, how are they going to think about it, interact with it? But then when they create a usability test, people forget that you need to have empathy with the tester and, and think about, really think about when I write this task, have I written it in a way that will make sense to them? Yeah. Does it my company, my platform? Have I used word choices that make sense? Have I explained the relevant context that they need to know to give good feedback? And a surprising number of people will write tasks and create tests that show no empathy or no understanding of, of the user um, and, and, you know, people don't even think to kind of step outside their own head and apply that empathetic mindset, mm -hmm. creating a usability test. You are designing an experience. You're designing an experience that a tester is going to uh, have. Mm -hmm. And you need to treat it the same way that you would design a web page, a web flow, a, a, an app 
you know, interface. Sa same concept, uh, you know, that, that empathetic mindset of, of who is my audience and what do I need to give and show to them so that they have a successful experience. That is what enables part right. of a successful research study. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen so many times. It's like, it's presumptive. I think, I think a simple thing is like, hey, like, oh, I think the person that's taking my test is going to understand this. It presumes that they have the same level of familiarity with your product. And it's, it's a subconscious presumption, right? You're writing this down. And, and you give me instructions to someone, but assume that person has never even heard of your product, right? Yeah. Um, uh, actually, I'm going to take this moment to, to like throw out a very simple nitpick. Uh, and it's also a fun fact. Put my, put, my, put my philosophy degree to, to use that I haven't touched in ages. Uh, <laughs> do you guys know what, do you guys know what uh, uh, begging the question means? I know that it's often used wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm one of the ones that uses it wrong. So. Yeah, so the most common use of begging the question is actually wrong, right? It's like, uh, like it's like, hey, it begs the question means this question is begging to be asked. Yeah. And that's what people think it means. And that's how it's used a lot. That's, uh, that's not, yeah. I mean, now it's become common enough parlance that, that like, you know, it's, it's, it's no one going of back. the ways of using it. <laughs> uh, it's just like how the word literally now also means like <laughs> like it's that doesn't mean literally anymore uh it's like more of like a superlative but no the actual thing of begging the question when you're begging the question it means you are presuming uh like you're being presumptive of like a, a base premise right so it's like it, it if i if i was like oh um do you think this product solves the problem to your uh to your satisfaction uh, it, that would be begging the question because if, if you and I have not agreed on the fact that the problem is in fact a problem and needs to be solved, yeah. right? Like, so you're begging the question if you're just like assuming a premise when you're asking the question. Sure. Uh, like you're right. testing a, a site that sells t-shirts and you say, which of these t-shirts would you buy? Yeah. You're, you're assuming that they are going to buy one. Maybe they, their actual answer is, I don't want to buy any of these. They're all exactly. Bad. So, like in an argumentational context, right? Like uh, when you're when you're talking to testers, and and this happens a lot, right? Like people people ask them questions on like uh, like, hey, Dad, like you know, do, how much do you like this product? Like, I don't like it. Like, <laughs> or or like you know, I have no feelings about this product, right? Like I have I have zero, right? Um. So so I think I think that's something where it's a common blind spot. Like you said, Tim, like in research, like people, people lack that empathy and just end up like having these presumptions of knowledge that they foist upon the testers. And that results uh, in pretty like shoddy data. Yeah. I'll tell you what, let's switch gears. Uh, we yeah. have a lot more to talk about. We haven't touched on AI or on road mapping. Uh, what do we want to get to first? Um, uh, let's go. I think, I think let's end with AI because I feel like, the AI stuff is like pretty greenfield still, right? Like, every, and, and like the the like people are approaching it like in an exploratory way. But I think the product decision making is something that's more practical. It's been like you know people have walked that path for a while, and uh, I would love to I'd, I'd love to delve into that. Okay, well, let me start off with a clip from Dan Fleetwood. He joined us early on, and we asked him about balancing some of the different inputs into a product roadmap and where some of the different uh, decisions come from and how you choose which things you are going to or not going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and we can go from there. Uh, here we go. 
if you're in the product role, right, you always have like these grandiose ideas of like what you want to do with your product. And I think mm-hmm. there's also, I think there's like probably three factors that can come into play of like what, what actually happens in terms of like, there's the reality of like market market situations, like obviously with COVID and then when things come up and new technology comes available, like, you know, chat GPT and implementing that there's also Hey, like, what do my clients need? And that kind of what I was mentioning earlier, but then I think there's a third component, like you mentioned in terms of like, what do I want to do? Like, what do we see as the the future? And I would like to, I would think that a lot of times those things should match up. Right. And if you're Mm -hmm. not sure, if you're not sure about what to build or you need some validation, one thing that we've done is, you know, I created a customer advisory board to have like, okay, these are some things that we're thinking about um, releasing, you know, what as clients you know what do you think and that's really helped us i think in terms of both validating yeah we're on the right track or or no we're not so and before we even get into discussion on that i want to play one more clip because dan there brought up that one of those inputs is customer requests right Mm -hmm. and and that's come up in in many of the episodes but there was a really great quote from uh i think it was amelie Mm -hmm. yeah about customer requests and, and why sometimes she rejects those customer requests or, or basically does something else instead. Right. And I thought it was a really insightful moment. So let me pull this one up and we'll watch this one too. Really listening through what people say they want is a really important skill, I feel like, right? Like people say like, I want this, 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 and this, but then they behave in a different way. Mm-hmm. So getting really good at asking follow-up questions, again, being super close to your customers, seeing how they behave, right? Like how are they actually behaving on the platform versus what are they saying, right? Like people told us we really want billing. And I don't actually think that's true because I don't think billing is the biggest pain point right now. So we were like, okay, I think we can like put billing further down on our stack ranking. Mm, Beautiful, right? Didn't have to build the billing infrastructure. So I think my advice would be to like listen a little bit between the lines and like watch out for behavior before you jump onto like new feature requests really like immediately. I love that clip. I, I mean, and it ties into what we were talking about before of, of reading between the lines when you're analyzing what you hear from users and customers. But I mean, mm-hmm. a, a great take there by Emily, really insightful. And, and I like just to add to this, um, because I also I, I help with interview kickstart, like teaching people how to become PMs at these fan companies. And I help build curriculum. And one of the questions that I, I asked them is like, what's like a weakness that maybe product managers face. Um, And I like one of the responses I got from one of the people in the class, they were saying like a lot of times product managers listen to like, um, like rather than listening to it's, it's like a spine skill, right. To like read between the lines and understand what your customer is saying um, rather than just kind of like following and blankly like listening to them flatly almost and using their own personal feelings. And so I thought that was a, very well tied to what Amelie said too. And it's so critical. It's a, it is such a skill that you need to develop, I think, um, as a product oriented person or as a user researcher, how to listen to what your customers are really saying. Yeah. And then we can balance that with, um, in the episode with Vivek, he talks about an 80-20 principle. Actually, the 80-20 principle has come up a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in the case of Viv, he was talking about choosing what to put on the roadmap. And he was saying, you know, it might be 70, 30, but something in that ballpark, but about 80% of what you build in in his perspective should be things that customers are asking for. And 20% is stuff that you want to do stuff, you know, bets that you want to make 
uh, innovative new ideas. So the customer requests, obviously, and, and Amelie's not saying don't listen to customer requests. She's saying pick the ones you want. Um, but but Viv's estimation was 70, 80, 80% of what you're doing probably should still be coming from directly from customers. Mm-hmm. That smaller portion, that 20 to 30% is your bets, your gambles, your big ideas, your new spins on things. I, so here's the thing, right? Like I, I think, I think to, the contrast for me between Dan and Amelie's video, right? Like Dan's thing of the customer advisory board was exploratory. He goes to the board being like, hey, these are some things we're thinking of building. What do you think? Right. So it's kind of like validating, validating like the idea, because once you once you've been in the space and you're, you know, you for us, like we we've built we've built a product in the experience research space. Right. It's something that we've honed. So we have we have a sense for, hey, like this is what uh, is going to help enable and solve for some of the core use cases that we afford, right? Uh, and then, and then we go validate that out with our customers. So I think that's that's the way in which, uh, like Dan's doing it with the uh, with the customer advisory board. Uh, in Amelie's case, right, you're talking to customers and you're you're hearing things from customers, and I don't doubt that like somewhere down the line, Amelie might even build bill it, right? Like it might happen, right? It's just it's just like like I. It's still coming from customer requests, but we get to choose how to prioritize. Like uh, the product builder gets to choose and should be the person that prioritizes, right? Because you, uh, I mean, we can talk about an example that we had. Like we were, we were, um, like I was pitching to a customer. Uh, this is this is about four years ago. Right? We were pitching to a customer, and they were insistent on having n-block randomization, so the ability to have like a set of tasks and randomize them. Right now, now this is a request that I've heard from them. I had heard anecdotally from other other customers, right? But as a feature, where that fits in in the larger roadmap, right? Like to time to insight, right? If that's if that's like the north star, I have decided is the north star, and that's the north star where every time we've we've kind of rode in that direction, we have noticed like additional customer value, which means. Our existing customers are willing to pay us more for access to new features. We're getting new customers that are that are excited about it, right? Like there, there's like a business mindedness to this. It's like, okay, is n block randomization gonna have that that like massive impact? Like I'm I'm pretty sure we're gonna build it, right? Like it's we all know it's on our roadmap for task types. But when does that get built? Is the question, right? Like the request came in three years ago, but. I know, I, like we choose when we want to build it. Yeah, um, on this point, you, you pick out what is the most salient problem that customers are facing right now. And yeah, you go from there. And, and, and it's not like sorry, a it's not just like a one and done roadmap, right? Like it's not like, hey, this is the timeline. That's it. It's something that needs to be revisited every quarter, every month, and like updated because maybe billing doesn't matter today, and maybe tomorrow it matters one quarter ahead of when you actually plan for it, right? Um, That's something to call out as well. Absolutely, right? Like these are are not set in stone. Like anyone's like, this is the thing and we're never going to change it is like, like that amount of rigidity just does not, does not scale. It's not, it's not like tenable. Uh, But I, I think that ultimately you reach this point of, okay, I'm, I'm hearing what this person's saying. Uh, but also you have the perspective as the problem solver because you're solving the problem for multiple different customers. For each customer, their problem is the most important problem, right? Like, obviously, right? Like, hey, my problem is huge for me. 
But like, if I'm going to the solution provider, the solution is provider is not making a solution just for me. It's making a solution for like the persona. So yeah. I need to I need to choose where that falls. Um, and and I think like you know the customer input is super valuable because you want to validate to Dan's point, right? If I'm thinking of building something, if I'm like, oh, I've come up with this cool feature, I want to I want to ground it in reality, being like, is this something customers will use and pay for, right? Uh, very economically speaking, but uh, yeah. after after I hear like a piece of customer feedback, I can't throw out the whole roadmap and and start again, right? Uh, I, I love that you brought up personas here because something that I learned on this podcast actually is, mm -hmm. is the term ICP, ideal customer profile, uh, which I hadn't been familiar with before, and it's kind of until then it was insane clown posse, right? Like that's yeah, that's the only way. Posse for those uh, <laughs> yeah, all those juggalos out there. <laughs> yeah, ICP, the uh, ideal customer profile, kind of like a, a strategic alternative to a persona, where you're not adding your stock image of this person whose name you made up and and all this, but um, you you still have this general idea of who um, who, who is your customer, your, your umbrella customer that you're building for actually let me let me um let me pull up a clip by julie um where i because we had a few guests talk about this and she was one of them and I, I like what she had to say about it um and how she tied it in not just to the ideal customer profile but then talking about um the entire tech stack that that person has and exploring opportunities within that mm -hmm. because we have a focused department on enterprise, you know, initiatives, mm -hmm. and that includes like, you know, core enterprise features, plus like our partner portfolio, we start to look at um, prioritizing integrations that can help us drive more adoption towards larger teams and companies and large organizations. So that would mean, you know, not necessarily looking at everything from like an SMB customer angle, but what is the tech stack of the enterprise customer? What is the gap that that is the reason that we are not winning those deals? And, and Tim, if possible, could we follow that up with uh, the clip of Vivek talking about like putting putting the profile yes. at the center? I think that the, there's like a lot of mesh there. That's a great one. Yeah. Let me just find that one. I think that's a that's a great way. I mean, that is that is almost the very definition of of user centric, right? Or or, or like persona centric. You literally have them at the center of your universe. Um, I think I think it's also economically very viable if you think about it. Then, then your tool again, uh, part of part of the reason why I do it that way. Or it's not an MA, Almost everybody does it that way. Is because then you can get the hundred percent of the share of wallet. So if you if you just go back to it, you know, bottom line economics is you know if you're not doing it, somebody else will effectively do the other way around. Right. So you're competing in this environment. So if you do not provide those tools um, and if it, if it is fundamentally needed for that role to be successful, then somebody else is going to do it. So it's actually an economic, I mean, apart from being customer centric, it's also an economic, economic construct. I might have grabbed the wrong clip there. Was uh, that? I think it's this clip prior to that one. But but even still, like I think I think like, you know, the concept is is valid like you know this is you're putting the customer at the center you're putting this persona at the center you're seeing the gaps you're seeing their functions you're seeing like 
hey, here's all of their all of their key challenges, their key tasks and the challenges within those tasks. And then and then you as as the person that's building the product, try to solve for those. Right. And and maybe maybe your beachhead is one particular problem. Right. And then and then you sort of scale out. And like so if, even if we look at the earliest iterations of the research tool. Right. Uh, if you remember in 2014, uh, the pitch was very much to people like you should be doing this in a remote way, uh, save yourself time, save yourself money, yeah. right? Like p- people were still inviting, uh, inviting customers in, buying them lunch, sitting them down, synthesizing data in like a, like, you know, like a real time environment, um, uh, like collecting data in a real time environment, having to synthesize it post facto. And like any research effort used to take like multiple days, right? So the, the, the value prop and the problem we were solving then is, hey, do it cheaper and faster get your like you know define your persona go give them some tasks they'll come back with some results in a couple of hours right now now the thing i think like that's become table stakes right that that's a must-have i i don't think we're making that pitch anymore of like hey start doing research remotely it's hey here's how here's how our tool will help you um analyze the research data better right or help you build better tests um and and things like that so i think i think the kind of problem we solve evolves. The next thing, I mean, with, with Stitchology, like uh, when, when, when we brought that on, it's like, okay, we know, again, the user research part became table stakes. So it's like, okay, hey, we're adding a product analytics layer to help you inform the kind of research you're doing. Are you testing the right things? So I like who we're putting at the center is for, for us, right, is like your head of product or, uh, or your PM even, right? And then, and then we're like slowly solving problems for them. Or, or a product team, I guess, like what we've put at the center is our product team of like PMs and designers, and then and we're solving all the products for them. Yeah, yeah. Right. This, this was a pretty recent episode, but I, I know John Falushko uh, talked about it, and he's a, he's a product manager himself, and he said that uh, he likes to offer free consulting to his customers on any problem, not just related to his own product and their usage of it, but anything in the entire sphere that they operate within, because it allows him to better understand the entire experience that they have in, you know, in their day-to-day work and where his product fits into that. And it allows him to get this bird's eye view of, of what the opportunities are kind of in the broader circle around his specific product and where it fits in. Right. Uh, he, he spoke about how, uh, it helps him understand, even even if it's a meeting that's not about the product he's solving, it helps him understand that persona better, like understand like the customer and the customer's needs better. And that, as a result, helps him uh, design uh, and like build better, better, more targeted solutions. Uh, at this juncture, I wanna, I wanna switch gears to talk about our third pillar, I think, uh, or uh, AI, like the third, third thing. Um, I, think, I think something before we even hop into a clip, Something that's obvious is AI is here to stay. Um, and there was like a clear gear switch that happened when ChatGPT went, uh, went public with, uh, with their public facing with their product. Uh, so it, you just put this like super powerful generative AI in the hands of the average user. And then MidJourney did that with like image generative AI, right? And now there's like AI, AI-based applications that are being built off of that. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're building AI applications as well. So I think this is, this is something that is going to become more and more prevalent as a conversational topic, 
But <clears throat> what I would love to do is kind of uh, reference like uh, Rob Aceron's clip uh, mm-hmm. about um, where, where he talks about like, hey, what is, because there's this fear of like, oh, AI is going to take my job. Right, like AI is going to take my job as a marketer, or AI is going to take my job as a as a researcher, designer, what what have you. Right, like um, I I think Rob has like a really really good uh, clip about about like, hey, what does my role become mm-hmm. when uh, when AI can do all of this heavy lifting for me? Yeah, well, let's watch that. I'm going to answer the the converse of that question. Um, where where will user research still be able to contribute when a lot can be automated via AI? That's awesome. That's actually um, the question. Yeah. So, and that is on those strategic behavioral insights. So I I recently worked on a product where users faced a decision point in in the product, and uh, you, we found out that there were lots of ways that decision was going wrong. And people were choosing the wrong path for them and not understanding that that was the wrong path for them. And then getting this much worse experience than they could have had and then having worse conversion as a result. Okay. What? And after studying it in several different ways, I fell back on, oh, wait, this is classic decision-making under uncertainty. So if you're familiar with the research of Kahneman Tversky, that's all the, the whole thing. They, they showed lots of different ways that, that decision-making falls apart when it's under, under uncertainty, either lack of information or yeah. too much information, et cetera, right? These people faced the decision they, in the product. They didn't know how to make the decision. What did they do? They fell back on heuristics, which, again, Kahneman Tversky, all, they have lots of specific examples, but the general lesson is when people are under making decisions under uncertainty, they fall back on heuristics. Those heuristics may or may not be applicable, but at least it's a way to get you past the decision point. Right. So, so the outcome of, of my looking at this was to say, you can try and help people make this decision better, but I don't think you're going to succeed. I don't think you're going to put enough information on the interface or do anything. To, you're not going to win that battle. They're, they have switched modes, and they're now operating in heuristic land. You probably should help them avoid ever facing this decision. That's profound. Because because behaviorally, they're not going to make it well. So where, what, I, maybe AI one day will be able to have those kinds of insights about a product, but it's going to do, a, it's going to automate a lot of other UX research functions first before it automates that kind of insight into, into thinking about a product. So I, I think there's a big opportunity for UX research that's not going to be uh, influenced by AI, but it's going to be that part of the scale of contribution in the organization that isn't the everyday tasks right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to become a more rewarding profession because it's going to be more about the really impactful, strategic, thoughtful tasks. Uh, I love yeah. this cliff. <laughs> I, I really, I agree with it so strongly where I think it's, I don't think AI is out to replace like many of the roles that exist today, it's really like meant to optimize your day to day, right? Can you get time to insight to even 
be shorter, right, than it is today? And if so, how? And I think that's, I totally agree with this point over there, um, that there still needs to be some fundamental human element looking at these, at this and making those types of business decisions at the end of the day to still, even if you are using AI to optimize your day to day. Absolutely. What he talked about there reminded me of something that Rahul said uh, about, you know, if you give AI a defined problem to solve, it will turn out an answer for you. Now, that might not be the answer that the question actually needed, but it will give you an answer to within the bounds that you created. And what Rob did there as a human researcher is take one step back from the question and come to a realization that the question was wrong in the first place and they needed to rethink the entire strategy. And he, he's saying AI probably, at least for the near future, won't do that. If, if, it, if he just asked AI to do, you know, to answer the questions he started out with, it would have given him some answer within those enclosed parameters, but it wouldn't have thought outside the box and realized the error of the entire approach. Right. Um, AI doesn't, will never be like, hey, I think you're solving the wrong problem, right? Or, hey, I think you're asking me to do the wrong thing. Like, I, I don't think you should be asking me to do this. It's just going to be like, all right, you, you told me to do this, I'll do it, right? And and it'll do it. it, it it'll churn it out, right? It'll churn out like six paragraphs if you want right expounding why why like something untenable is is necessary or whatever it is but but it's up to you to to figure out like where whether you're asking you to do the right things uh, and so on and so forth right and i think rob does does like allow room for like hey maybe in the future right we have a more general ai that's like truer like you know truer form like just more benign Skynet type stuff where it's able to make decisions and, and like, you know, uh, and have that sort of critical approach. But right now it doesn't, it's just, uh, it's a, it's like a fancy calculator basically, right? Like it's able to, it's able to power through and, and generate a ton of information in very, in a very small amount of time or ton of content, really not even information because that, that implies some degree of veracity. Like it's just, it's just content, like a ton of content and like a really short period of time. Um, let, let me play a, a clip by Darby here. I, I like um, his summary of, of how AI fits into the picture. Right now, we're going through a transformation of, of AI, like, you know, have to think about that, that is that is pretty consistent, like the relationship between product and growth and all of these things just feed into uh, like feed into like an existing rubric. Yeah, if if if. If I take a step back, um, and I'll just stick with the technology area, you know, internet was a big, massive shift. Mobile, you know, was a right. big, massive shift. Cloud computing was a big, massive shift. And, you know, AIs obviously, you know, actually could call Web3 as the potential of a big, massive shift. And I, I think it, yeah. it, it, the use cases are there probably a little bit different than maybe what, what started, but that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. And then the last, you know, we're right now in this big AI shift. And I think through all of these, it creates massive opportunity. But for me, I look at it and say, okay, what I, what I try to look at when I think broadly about um, product development, and I think broadly about product growth, regardless of the technical shift, I think really understand, still really understanding the core human driver behind it. Um, and so sometimes, you know, us within the tech space kind of fall in love sometimes with the technology as opposed to the outcome of what technology, you know, does or means. So as I think about it, like, 
you know, 95% of the world does not know how cloud computing works, but they don't care. Right. Um, just like, you know, probably a good chunk of the world don't really understand how a combustible engine in a car works. Right. But again, they don't care. As long as I can sit in and turn the key and go, uh, away we go. And so right now, you know, with the big shift on AI, we're, we're, this is going to open up, I think, a massive opportunity for incumbents. It's going to open up a massive opportunity for startups. Mm -hmm. But I still think it fundamentally comes down to what problem are you solving? What are the use cases? And how do you almost take the technology and put it behind and focus on the outcomes? That's great. I, I, I mean, it, it makes complete intuitive sense. Who knows how a light bulb works? Who, who knows why? you flip that switch and the light comes on. Someone knows, but most of us don't. We don't yeah. need to. The, the technology will always keep changing. But the fundamentals of, of what makes a successful product, a successful uh, organization or business is minimally impacted by those technological shifts. They just create new opportunities. Right. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think there's something to be said about uh, when, when, when people start talking about AI, right? Like, and, and this is something that uh, the current applications of AI and the way, the way uh, at least like if I'm narrowing the scope, right? Like generative AI as it's, as it's being applied a bunch, right? Like people are using open AI endpoints uh, to, to generate, like generate text uh, for specific prompts. And, and it's really the prompt engineering uh, that goes around it. That that increases like the validity of the output, the output content, and so on and so forth, right? Um, I think people conflate that with like the greenfield, like hey AI, the sci-fi concept, right? Uh, AI, this like like massive amorphous thing that's just gonna revolutionize technology and make us all obsolete, right? And and I think we're not there. Like we're not, we're nowhere close to there, right? Um, it's it's something it's something that is like we need to be mindful of, right? Like the the CEO of OpenAI carries around a kill switch wherever he goes, for example, right? It's stuff that you need to be mindful of, and and it's things like that that kind of feed into the mythos of it. But I think as as like practitioners, you're like, hey, what's an AI application? Like, we know right now we're 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 trying to train uh, AI to like help people to write better tasks, and it's uh, it's hard. It's hard. Like engineering the prompts are hard. Like it's uh, it's um, it needs a lot of handholding. It needs a lot of correction, and and all of that handholding and correction is human input, right? Like it's the prompt engineering is human input. Like how good of a prompt I write is on me understanding that product and understanding my what I want as the outcome and right and interpreting that for this machine that's just going to churn out words right like it's it's human consciousness and it's like our it's our ability to guide this that's uh that's actually going to make it valuable at least in the near term and I, when I say near term I mean like for the for the rest of our lives probably right uh like maybe maybe our children and grandchildren have to contend with like something of like a higher order intelligence but for us it's very much like just taking this thing that's able to brute force content generation and uh putting it putting it towards uh like a specific use case um yeah 
I think I, I want to play one more clip. We, we've given Rahul a lot of shout outs and haven't actually played anything by him. Um, okay. I want to play. He, he talks about the data that AI is trained on. And that's come up in a few episodes, but I really liked what he had to say about it. And this is a short one. Oh, it's saying that I've shared too many videos. <laughs> Hold on. Let me, let me try one more time. Sorry, folks, for those listening live. Uh, I think if I remove some of the, the ones that I've played, yeah. already, it might allow me. Ultimately, I feel like every product in the next 30 years, 40 years is going to be like in some way, shape or form AI augmented, if not like the product itself is AI. So does that become the differentiator, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on. I think data is the differentiator. It's not just data, though. It's data, quality of the data and how much I'm able to leverage that data. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, it's a combination of those three things. I'll give you an example. The IRS has every person's tax information. Could they generate an AI model that's going to identify where le legislation could affect the country's debt more or less? Absolutely. Right. Are they allowed to use that data? No. Right. <laughs> so like now you run into problems and like, that's where like, there's a lot of open questions around how we're going to legislate or or um, codify how data can be used. It's really going to be fascinating. Yeah, I, I bang on. Uh, I think data being the differentiator, uh, Darby, uh, for example, like Unbounce is is they're doing a smart builder, and what's unique about theirs is they've trained their their AI on the landing page data that they have. Like they have a massive library of landing page data. And that is what's powering this AI's ability to identify like how to how to build a better landing page, right? Which is different than if I just plugged it into a chat GPT, like like an open, like an uh, open AI endpoint. And I'm like, okay, tell me what's what's this? Like the, the value uh, that you're gonna get from one is gonna be different from the other, right? Uh, and, and so I think like data is, uh, is going to be is, is going to be the differentiator for these um, for these things for real. Um, I think I think we're like over an hour now, uh, and I, again, like, this is what I meant, right? Like, I'm glad we did this episode because we keep talking about this stuff, um, and and it and, and I think we should do this check in every once in a while, yeah. just to, like go back over previous episodes and yeah. and sort of digest information that we glean. Uh, again, like thanks always. By the way, like. I love having guests on, but also just like love shooting the shit with you guys. Like it's, yeah. you know, you're, you're awesome. I learn something new every time I hang out with you guys. So uh, it, this has been great uh, uh, for all of our listeners that stuck the hour and two minutes out with us uh, and, and had to see multiple iterations of my face, as well as the one episode with, uh, with Rob Aceron, where I very clearly needed to pee. Uh, <laughs> you so, guys need to watch uh, season six, episode one, Black Mirror. It just came out. It's yeah. literally, I, all I was thinking about through this episode is that as well. Like, it's very, yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but but thanks so much for tuning in to episode 15. Uh, next week, we'll be back on with episode 16 with uh, our regular format with a guest. Uh, really looking forward to having you all tune into that. Until then. Uh, have a great weekend. I'm your host, Rit, joined by Tim and Shruti, and uh, have, a, have a great day. See you Bye -bye. guys. Bye.